As our healthcare and economic systems continue to adapt to the realities of COVID-19, researchers in mental health are also being forced to pause or even cancel projects that took years to develop and implement. On today's episode, we discuss how one group managed to save their work with refugee populations and the lessons they've learned. We'll have that story and more coming up. From the Lancet Psychiatry in New York, I'm Dustin Graham. Stay with us. Extended quarantines and stay-at-home orders have devastated scientific research around the world, especially in clinical research that often requires face-to-face contact. On the line with us to discuss how they've adapted their work to COVID-19 conditions is Dr. Kenneth Miller, Senior Researcher at War Child Holland, and Alexandra Chen, a graduate student at Harvard University's Department of Education, Human Development, and Psychology. Thanks for joining us. Pleasure to Thank be here. Thank you, Dustin. So can you tell us a bit about what specific project you had been working on and how it was put at risk owing to COVID-19? Sure. Yeah, it, it, we, uh, we were just, just about done with implementation in the second wave of a randomized control trial of uh, a psychosocial support intervention for Syrian refugees in the north of Lebanon. We call it the Caregiver Support Intervention, or CSI for short. And uh, we, you know, we had finished a pilot RCT uh, of the CSI in the same, same communities last year, and that went really well. We found our methodology worked. We had 99% retention at endline, uh, 85% completion of the program, and on all of the outcomes from parental mental health to parenting to child mental health, we had medium to large effect sizes and no change in the weightless control. So we thought we were ready to roll. And just as we started wave one, a revolution broke out in Lebanon. Economic disaster just exploded. But we were able to get through wave one implementation and end line just fine. And then halfway through wave two, uh, the pandemic hit. And we were watching it approach. We got through session six of the nine. And then we thought, what do we do now? They're going to lock down very soon. There was a lot of talk in Lebanon. And sure enough, lockdown happened. No one could leave their homes. We didn't know what to do. We, we, we had done six of the nine sessions, and we, we thought, okay, well, let's give it a few weeks and see if things change. If they change, we'll finish those three sessions, we'll do N-line, and we'll at least have that. It became clear that wasn't going to happen. Alexandria, one solution you came up with uh, for moving forward with the project was to continue the project using phone interviews. Why did you think this would work? So uh, other than, I think, enjoying... Um, the look on Ken's face when I proposed it. Uh, <laughs> he really thought I was quite mad. Uh, I think there were two things. One is that having worked with the refugee communities for a long time uh, in general, but then with this particular uh, community who I know had a lot of loyalty for us and our team, I had a sense of confidence that they, um, if we could pull it off, te- you know, uh, technologically um, in terms of our team capacity that they would be game to work with us so that's part of the confidence uh, but the other part was that I had semi-designed this as a plan b for another uh, study that I'd been on before with a Bedouin community out in the middle of nowhere um, in the desert and so I and we had implemented half of it remotely at the time to great success so I had a feeling that this could possibly work um, in Lebanon where phone and internet is challenging, but not impossible. Um, And we would just have to plan it very carefully. So once you decided to move to phone-based interviews, how did you 
carry this out? How did you carry out the plan? Well, so I think in terms of um, the, maybe two parts of this, one was sort of setting it up and then one was the actual implementation. From the setup side and the decision-making side, uh, we, you know, we had to ask ourselves, how are we going to manage uh, in a context where there are lots of electricity cuts um, phone calls are expensive, internet is you know, inconsistent, and how are we going to also manage a team capacity when the team is used to being together in the same community centre, and now we have 10 RAs who are spread all across Lebanon. Meanwhile, Ken, myself, and the rest of the coordination team are spread across four time zones. So we essentially um, found out that in terms of technology, we could toggle between phone and WhatsApp calls. The caregiver participants, um, you know, most of them uh, signed up and they said, no problem, we're willing to call over the phone. Uh, and then in terms of the, the timing, we had, we had the time to be able to roll it out, although it was tight. And um, the study size was probably the most daunting thing um, of trying to reach 240 caregivers, but I scheduled it out and I said, well, let's give it a shot. And at the end of the day, it was this sort of um, algorithm of trying to see where our weakest link was. And for us, it really wasn't the technology and the electricity and the phones and what have you, but we had a feeling that we could work it out between multiple, um, between multiple measures. So that is what we went for, and we uh, successfully managed to interview 93.7% of our caregivers. Now, obviously, no one wants to have to make changes uh, in the middle of running a trial, but I'm curious what lessons you've taken away from this experience that you might apply in the future, uh, whether or not there's a pandemic. I would say for myself, I, I still like face-to-face -face, uh, assessment, and one of the reasons is when you're working with communities in, in you know settings of high adversity, the face-to-face -face gives you more context, and it, it, mm -hmm. it's easier to identify uh, people who are having you know particularly big challenges, and it's easier to intervene quickly. Having said that, I think one of the things I took away from this was the realization that this is absolutely doable, and that as long as conditions might persist, I would encourage people doing similar kinds of field projects to really plan ahead for the possibility that they might need a, a backup plan. The other thing I, I would say was that we really needed to take care of our team. Uh, we, had, we had one RA who really struggled, you know, I think the combination of what she was hearing, some of her own life stress, uh, the challenges of being in lockdown, really caught up with her. And what was really remarkable was the way the team, everyone from their own homes, was able to kind of hold her in such a way that instead of stopping the work the next morning, she was able to continue uh, and doing much, much better. But really paying attention to the, the well-being of the team in this kind of work where you don't see each other, you're not together, and you can't go out to dinner at the end of the workday and support each other, I think was so important. Now, hopefully crises like these will continue to be rare, but with climate change, it seems like the need to prepare oneself for future disruptions is important. So, Alexandra, as an early career investigator, what have you taken away from having to adapt your work to something like COVID-19? It's a great question. I think um, one of the things that I really learned from this experience was, uh, in sort of a two-sided coin, the training 
prior to the remote implementation is incredibly important. And this is everything from the technology of it to the timing and also um, uh, making it extremely clear what sort of support you as a junior researcher are going to have from your supervisor, from their supervisor, um, and that you have a team supporting you even though you're physically alone in a room probably trying to tell your siblings to keep quiet. Um, <laughs> I think so that's that's one side of it and the other if I if I may is that uh, one of the biggest lessons uh, while doing this was learning how to if you are um, carry, carrying out as a research manager in the field for instance how to schedule the data collection such that you're managing the team's energy as well because being in remote locations means that you don't get to get up really and stretch um, you don't have a team you know lunch break even though we had time spaced in between so for instance, I had intentionally scheduled instead of five days of everyone gets, you know, eight interviews a day, we packed it so that the first day was the most intense. And then the gradual number, um, the number gradually lessened um, over time. And so help them to be able to sleep in a little bit more as the days went on um, and also not be as stressed out as a result. And that's Dr. Kenneth Miller and Alexandra Chen. Thanks very much to both of you for joining us today. Thanks so much. Uh, Thank you, Dr. For more information on their story, please read their correspondence published in The Lancet Psychiatry and online today. And in other news, New York City has responded to growing concerns about access to methadone during stay-at-home orders for those in opioid treatment programs by launching a mobile delivery system. The system will be coordinated and carried out by the New York State's Office of Addiction Services and Supports, along with help from the Coalition of Medication-Assisted Providers and Advocates and New York City's Department of Homeless Services. And finally, The Lancet Psychiatry has recently published a position paper outlining key areas of mental health and research that should be prioritized in the wake of COVID-19. The piece was developed by mental health experts and service users with lived experience, all working closely together to chart out a call for action. You can find that paper on our homepage. That's it for this episode. Tune in again to hear the latest news and views on mental health from around the world. From the entire editorial team at the Lancet Psychiatry, thanks for listening and stay safe. <laughs>